Hello and welcome to the EIU's Digital Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Swaby. This podcast is sponsored by DXC, an independent IT services company that specialises in digital transformation. We thank them for their support. There used to be a time when the internet was a mostly visual phenomenon. Gradually, though, it has become increasingly audible. Sound in the form of music, the audio component of videos, or indeed podcasts, has become an intrinsic part of our digital environment. Most recently, sound has become not just an output, but an input, with smart speakers allowing us to retrieve information and control devices with our voices. How is this audible dimension changing the internet? What does it mean for organizations who rely on digital channels to reach their audiences? And what does the future hold for the audible internet? To find out, I was joined this month by Jennifer Allen, head of gov.uk, the UK government's public information site, by Ben Sauer, Director of Conversational Design at digital health startup Babylon Health, and by Dr. Lorenzo Piccinali, Senior Lecturer in Audio Interface Design at Imperial College London. I started our conversation by asking Jennifer why the UK's government digital service decided to make 12,000 pieces of public information available through smart speakers earlier this year. We did that because uh, gov.uk is the single website for the UK government. It's the trusted canonical source for most of the information. And we have somewhere in the region of 2.3 million visitors a day. Our overriding mission in that is that we make um, services and information that the government provides available to people at the point of need and in the way that they understand. So um, it turns out when you design well for humans, you tend to design well for the robots that help humans. I think from a gov.uk perspective, we recognise that often we do things as a as sort of leading the way um, sometimes and that it's important for us to try new technology in an appropriate fashion. Um, so we were looking at voice, thinking about how that was appropriate for us whilst working on a these sort of new service design patterns, basically. Um, and actually, the underlying work for um, that service design, you know, joined up navigation patterns was the thing that actually was picked up then by the voice assistants. So, um, but, you know, o- the overarching of that is there are three reasons why we would do it. So the first is around um, the growing usage. It's not, it's still fairly nascent, I would say, but um, there is a growing usage for it. Um, second is around accessibility. Um, it's not necessarily new in that regard as, you know, voice technology or, you know, so, um, and then third is around future-proofing. So uh, we are custodians really of government information and part of the job is to make sure that whatever the channel is of the future that we are provisioning there. Can you give us a little bit more information on what was the groundwork that had already been laid that put you in a, a good position to make this information available through a new channel? Well, it did require quite a lot of work. Um, It was a concerted effort to make sure that it would be um, uh, usable by the voice assistants or consumable by the voice assistants. Um, But it really starts with Gov.uk happening in 2011-2012 when the government estate of content and services was brought together uh, under a single umbrella. So the idea being that you don't have to understand government in order to interact with it. That means that from a content perspective, we're basically building, I don't mean architecturally, but we're building one store of the guidance and policy information from HMG, Her Majesty's Government, um, and uh, that um, that's sort of your basis for having uh, moving that then on to structured content. So we have something like half a million pages on uh, or pieces of content on gov.uk, um, and this is about 13,000 pieces of information or answers that are now consumable. So we are at the early early stage of that. 
Ben at Babylon Health, uh, you, in your words, have made a bet that uh, voice will be an important customer channel for you in future. Uh, why is that? And, and why in particular do you feel that uh, healthcare information and healthcare-related services are appropriate for, for voice channels? So um, I should probably start by saying that Babylon's mission is to make healthcare more affordable and accessible across the world. So when we see the emergence and the popularity of voice interfaces and how accessible they are, um, to people with mobility issues or even literacy, if you um, think even really broadly about what accessibility means, then actually voice is really the most accessible means of input and output that we have. Um, and for many decades now, we've been working the way that computers want us to work. And now we have a semi-reliable channel which works the way that we've been working for tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of years. Um I think the other thing about it is that it's uh, it feels more personal, it feels more intimate, which is very appropriate to healthcare. Um, you can potentially feel a bit more cared for uh, and, and develop a bit more of a trust with it eventually than you could with a screen interaction. Um, but there's a long way to go to, to earn that trust, and that's one of the things we're working on. Right, and you do indeed say that it's a bet. You, you don't think this is a dead cert, or are you quietly confident that this is going to be a, a big channel for you? I think given that it is the fastest-growing technology piece of technology in history, uh, smart speakers, uh, even faster than smartphones, I think it's a safe bet to say that the behaviours have changed enough such that many people will expect services to be accessible by voice by default. At the moment, we don't see that expectation. We see people using smart speakers for fairly kind of short, concise interactions, you know, uh, when's the next bank holiday, perhaps, um, to speak of Jen's content. Um, but in future, we will see more complex interactions, and we're pretty sure about that. It's just there's, there's quite a lot of work to get there. So one of the relatively unique things about smart speakers is, unlike let's say, the web before it, which was anyone could publish a website and expect to reach um, reach their audience. Everything in smart speakers so far, at least, is mediated by one of the big tech companies, most likely Google or Amazon. How does that affect the way you approach innovation? Does it change the way you, the, the risks you take or the decisions you might take about where to go next with uh, your interfaces? Yes, absolutely, because we're dependent on them for how that interaction with the customer works to a large degree. And you can see um, some quite big differences between the platforms in how they allow people to discover what's possible or how to connect to third parties. It's very tightly under their control. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it reflects on them much more than previous platforms. Um, if something breaks or if it fails, then you know a consumer or a user might feel some um, feelings towards an Amazon or a Google in a way that's perhaps a bit stronger than you would if you were just using a website through, let's say, a web browser or your computer. So there's a reason, there's good reasons for them to be more um, kind of uh, particular about how we use those and, and, and how other how third parties will utilize them. Um, but obviously that's also an enabler as well, right? So um, I, you see with Amazon that they are doing more and more every week even to try and make services more accessible and to figure out how we will discover things using them. So they're doing an awful lot of work to kind of open that up and, and make it easier. The kind of information you're dealing with is some of the most sensitive that, that people create information about their health with their particular privacy concerns related to the fact that um, 
A, it's voice related, but also people are, are speaking out loud about health conditions that you had to consider? So Amazon um, in particular are only just starting to um, comply with some of the regulatory frameworks around the world that will allow for truly uh, private, secure conversations. I mean private and secure in the sense that um, that data is not stored necessarily with them or complies to certain regulations like HIPAA in the US. Um, I mean, from our point of view, we're incredibly concerned about getting that right and making sure that the data is stored in the right way. Um, our we're very, very careful about that on our platform. Um, but to talk about consumer behavior, actually, we sort of find somewhat that it's the opposite, that actually people feel quite surprisingly free to talk about very personal health issues and ask questions of, let's say, Google Assistant about their conditions. Um, the, the, the challenge comes when you pair that to identifiable information. So at the moment, you know, a platform knowing that somebody was asking about, let's say, the symptoms of malaria, they don't know who that is. They know somebody said it. So when you pair those two things together and then you know an individual has a particular condition, that tends to be quite a challenge for privacy regulation. Do, do you think that um, people are more likely to confide in a machine than a doctor, for example? Um, we are seeing some evidence for that. Yes, particularly with things that you might feel sensitive about, like your mental health or things that you would rather interact with somebody that you don't know. So let's say you had a long history with a GP you may feel less comfortable about talking about your mental health, but perhaps talking to a machine feels a little bit less risky. Jen, for the UK government, were there any considerations with respect to this particular channel uh, based on the fact that the, this government information would be mediated via Amazon and Google? Yes, because we know that some users do have privacy concerns um, about voice technology and um, we would not make something available via those channels that was not otherwise available. So we use the open government license, which means that um, via open APIs, for example, our content can be consumed um, as long as it's credited to um, the government. Um, but uh, we would not find ourselves in a place where we were favoring one channel or only producing uh, content via that medium. So um, we take a channel agnostic approach, basically. Um, this is about uh, preparing our store of information for wherever the user wants to be um, and we believe that voice is one of those channels that we must support so um, I think that is different when you get into transactional services um, and there are other departments where um, that is a more complex issue because interacting with government often does require for example personally identifiable information um, and on gov.uk although we connect to all of those services under a unified banner we aren't run, running those things. So as government, we've got to work out how to do that. But from a um, provisioning information like when is the next bank holiday or what's my state pension, that's something that we can provide without there being um, so much concern. And what have you learned so far? What have, Since the, the launch in April or the announcement in April, what have you learned um, about the way people speak to their devices, the information they are most interested in? Or, or, and what has uptake been like? We are definitely still learning and it's sometimes hard to get the kinds of analytics to be um, confident about um, usage and where we should be prioritising um, the work. We do know that most people um, are, it's sort of factual, uh, factual questions that are most popular. Um, 
And that's something that we're now looking at how we scale up for all of the content on, on gov.uk um, because lots of the interactions are, are things like um, you know the, the bank holiday example, the state pension age and so on. So we prioritise content design anyway in gov.uk. We want to write in the way that people speak and think about their, their issues or what they're looking for. Um, and so that means that um, the more we do that work, the more we are supporting these channels. I think, you know, if we if we were then going to extend that wider for government, the, the issues about data privacy, um, you know, identity verification and so on, they are the things that become more complicated. Um, and as government, we need to look at how we do that across the across the board. But for now, our focus is on how do we future proof the content estate of government to be ready for the technology that's now emerging and also the technology we can't yet imagine that's coming um, which must rely on structured information written in a way that is the language that people use. So, Lorenzo, we've been talking a lot about voice so far, but voice is obviously only one part of audio. There's a, many different ways that audio could be used as a, a, an interface for information. But, but largely, we think of the web as a, a visual medium. Why has that been so far? Why do you think audio has so far been untapped? Well, it is true that uh, the web and the way we navigate is mainly visual. It's the same on the way we navigate on the street. Uh, vision, we use a lot of vision to gather information about space and information that then we use to move around space. So it makes a lot of sense that the web is a visual, is much more intuitive. People learn it faster and they relate to it better. We do use audio also when we navigate. Well, for example, there are specific channels or, or, or messages that are usually conveyed with audio, like a ringtone for a mobile phone, even though now it's mainly vibration, but uh, some sort of uh, um, alerts when you have received a new email or things like that. And we use those generally because we can do something else and then those ones can alert us if something happened so we can revert back to our attention to that. And I think that's very important is a very important feature that audio has, uh, which is, well, he, we, he's always active. We can't close our ears. We can close our eyes. So he's always there. And we can actually listen to things without paying too much attention to them until they become relevant. So this is a very important feature that we have in audio, in addition to the fact that it's a 360-degree sense, so we hear behind us. So I think the potential is very big, but is itself not particularly intuitive. It requires a bit of training, which goes against a lot of the things that we tend to do now on the web. Is there any insight you can provide us into what are the circumstances in which audio works well? How should we be thinking about what are good potential applications for an audio interface? Well, one clear example on when audio is very much actually used and very useful is when you have a sort of a sensory overload. And I think the example that I always make is when you park your car. You have your hands on the steering wheel or on the gearbox, you have on the gear shift and then you, you, your sight is on the car in front and the mirrors. You actually don't know how far is the car behind you. And so we use sound to render that. That's immediate, that easy, works beautifully, intuitive, and that's a good example. We have other senses that are overloaded and we use sound to convey an information that otherwise we, we couldn't. So in general, sound is, as I mentioned before, is 360 degrees, we can't switch it off, it's always active. Is generally monodimensional in the sense that we, we have much slower spatial resolution if compared with, with sight. But at the same time, we have much better temporal resolution. So we can hear things faster, for example. We can compare better two things in audio if, if, as opposed to, 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 to vision, for example. So I think there is a lot of potential. Unfortunately, it often, well, 
it requires good ideas and it often potentially will require some training and adaptation, but uh, potentially we could move towards uh, a much more audio-based internet. And the tools that have been developed in the past years are helping us a lot. A lot of your research has been focused on on interfaces for visually impaired people. What, what can we learn from those solutions and the experience of those people that um, can reveal the way we might use sound in future, why we might all use sound in future? So when you develop something for a visually impaired, you need to consider that there is no vision. So sound is the main source of information. And that is particularly challenging for the development, for example, of immersive algorithms, immersive virtual reality environment, when you can use only sound. And that has helped us a lot because uh, we need to be much more severe when we create virtual reality for uh, visually impaired individuals. And uh, this can help us uh, also understanding how to better create acoustic virtual reality for uh, sighted individuals, which is very interesting. Ben, you specialise in conversation and voice uh, user interface design. What are the basics of voice and uh, voice and conversation user interface design that differ from conventional visual interface design? I think the main thing to know is that conversation is unbounded, right? People can say anything. So the way in which you go about design tends to change radically. You can exert far less control over that interaction. When you design a screen, you can mostly dictate um, exactly what the options are. So what we do in voice design is spend a lot of time trying to keep the conversation on track, um, dealing with errors or unexpected things. I liken screen interactions to a bridge in the sense that it's very solid. You have handrails on the sides and you can know exactly where you're going. I liken a voice interaction to something a bit more like a tightrope. It's wobbly. It's, it can break very easily. You know, if somebody comes into the room and starts speaking, our, our audio environment is very chaotic compared to using a screen. So it breaks very easily. And that's why I say it's a tightrope. It's wobbly, easy to fall off. And so really our job is to kind of widen that tightrope, make it um, a bit firmer, a bit easier to walk across. Of course, voice Interfaces aren't brand new. Most of us have got an experience of calling up a, a call centre and getting an automated um, automated voice interface there. Uh, they've got to be among some of the least popular technologies ever devised. But of course, in, in recent years, we've seen considerable advances in voice recognition, thanks to machine learning and AI. What impact are those having on what is possible in a voice interface? Yeah, there's huge advances going on. I think I think it's important to recognise why they've traditionally been so broken for people. And again, it comes back to that idea that, you know, we've been speaking to each other for hundreds of thousands of years. And when voice interfaces didn't work well, for example, on over a phone system, it breaks our expectations about how conversations should work. And so now that those technologies are able to recognise the words with much higher levels of reliability... And continue to improve on that because the big platforms are improving their speech recognition all the time um, and hopefully making it much more accessible to um, different uh, accents and, and in different languages. So that growth is continuing. What What is not necessarily being solved quickly is the fundamentals of intelligence. So I think, you know, getting getting these conversations right, we're really just creating smart fakes at the moment. We're not really replicating true intelligence in any meaningful sense. However, there are obviously advantages. Google and Amazon continue to surprise me with what they're doing. 
Lorenzo, in a, in a talk of yours I, I watched, uh, you made the observation that um, often when you see um, visions of the future, it's, it's people wandering around with virtual reality headsets over their eyes, which I think we could be, well, touch wood, fairly confident is not realistically going to happen. But in fact, instead, we most of us walk around with headphones in our ears. It's much more plausible that... Um, Audio could be the dimension or the or the the platform for augmented uh, reality. Do you think we've got the sort of device infrastructure in place already to have a much more um, audible internet, or do you think new devices and new interfaces, new physical inf interfaces, are required to make it happen? I actually have students that come at uni with headphones on their neck, not even connected to a phone or an iPod, is sort of a fashion statement, and this uh, is 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 very interesting from my point of view. Uh, actually, in specific, I work on virtual reality on headphones. So I think the, the in general, the technology is there. We still need to advance a bit. For example, from the audio point of view, headphones tend to be rather isolating. So people wear headphones, they are isolated from the people around them. So this concept of augmented reality, of blending what is the sound that I reproduce through the headphones with what is the sound that comes from the environment is very, very interesting, but it's still an unsolved challenge. At the same time, this whole discussion on, on smart speakers starts becoming extremely interesting together with the whole side of the Internet of Things, sensors, um, smartwatches and etc. In a house, we start having so many uh, inputs and outputs in terms of, uh, of, of smart devices that are in different positions. Speakers, sensors, uh, motion sensors, uh, microphones. So if we start looking at these in a more holistic manner and start being able, for example, to, to map whatever sensor you have in the environment, whatever transducer you have, and which direction does it go to, you could be able to, for example, create very complex soundscapes, like very complex uh, virtual sound scenes with just the loudspeakers and smart things and the Alexa that you have around the house without having to calibrate a whole new system. Jennifer, uh, gov.uk's mission, if I understand correctly, is to make the government information available in as many ways as possible and in ways that is useful for the, the people of the UK. What role do you see audio, whether it's smart speakers or whether some of the, the more emerging uh, interfaces that we've been talking about. What r role does it play in that? What role does it play in the UK government's online presence? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And actually, I think it picks up on some of the privacy points as well, that over the um, seven years or so that gov.uk has been live, um, I think we have seen a real change in user behaviour in that time, where although there are still significant and valid privacy concerns, people are increasingly, I think, willing to give up data about themselves in order to receive a more relevant, personalised, curated experience to them. And I can see how um, the interactions that are on a very you know, narrow topic area, like booking a hair appointment, for example, um, we will get to a point pretty rapidly where you're not sure whether you're talking to a machine or to a human, um, because we have traded away enough in order to get that experience back. And it would seem that on a day-to-day -day basis, most people are becoming increasingly comfortable with that. Um, so I think from a uh, gov.uk perspective, um, we still have to take the, the same principles of accessibility, um, trust in government communications, but we don't have to be concerned with um, 
the numbers of visits to our website. We don't have to operate behind a paywall. We're not reliant on advertising revenue. Um, so actually, it's about being where the user is. And for me, that is um, a continuation of work from the very beginning about, you know, a user searches for something in, an en- in a search engine and, um, we were, you know, we were populating the answers there years ago um, and uh, making the right sort of design decisions where we are appropriately experimenting with this kind of technology and others so that um, uh, we are uh, being, being where the user is. Putting you on the spot for a moment, mm. um, if if our listener is is someone from an organisation who um, is prompted by this to think, okay, well, we need to be thinking more seriously about audio interfaces. We have a number of services and information services we we could provide. Mm-hmm. What should they do tomorrow? What is the the first step that they could take to put them down this road? Well, that's a really good question. Um, so I suppose the first step is, do you have your information, whatever it is you want to be sharing, in the right uh, architectural setup um, that it is, uh, you're going to be able to then do the work to make it consumable? So that can be via open APIs, that can be via using things like schema.org. It depends the kind of, you know, what sort of channels you want to um, uh, suit, I guess. But underneath all of that, I think I would say, you have to make the investment in producing your content or services in the way that people understand them. That is essential if we're going to be, um, you know, booking uh, restaurants or uh, doing your tax return uh, via voice or something like that. It will have to be in the language that people use. So if you invest in content design um, and you invest in then structuring that information and those two things can sit together very well, then actually you're going a long way to anticipating whatever the technology is. One of the things we've been discovering at Babylon is that it's probably better to design your content voice first. So at Babylon, we've been encouraging our doctors and our content producers to actually read out loud and maybe go home and do it because they don't feel comfortable doing it in the office. Because what we're finding is that when you when you design it voice first, it's easily it's easy to translate it into longer mediums or different mediums, but it's hard to go the other way around. So if you went and sat at your company website today and read out your, let's say, FAQs, you'd find that it doesn't sound very good when you read it out. Um, so if you actually start to future-proof the content, you need to actually be reading it out and, and, and hearing what it sounds like. And why would you say that is? Is it because when we write, it's too easy for us to add extra unnecessary words when we're typing, and when you speak, you have to be much more economical? I think there's a psychological effect where we just write more bureaucratically and more lengthily when we sit down in front of a screen um, and type. Um, it's more natural when we speak. And yeah, I, I can't speak to why that is, but it's it's an observable effect. I think we would agree with that, that um, how we're starting to think about our publishing model in government is... How does it change if instead of providing the functionality where you do a mobile preview, the assumption being that you are going to be visiting a website, but instead we've begun to think about how do you um, uh, put things in based on, say, read times or character length or exactly taking the approach of if someone only had 10 seconds, what are you going to be telling them? then um, that would be the right way of starting to think about this progressive disclosure, depending on the kind of channel that someone is consuming on. Um, And I think that would be very good discipline for being concise and talking in human language. Great. 
to close, can I ask you, Lorenzo, what is what is your vision of the the way we'll be inter, uh, interacting with the internet or digital information in, let's say, ten years? I'm mean, assuming audio will be a component, but but maybe not. Well, I I very well hope that in ten years we will be able to to blend perfectly what is. Uh, a virtual sound wave is a real one. Uh, before Jennifer was mentioning that we are close to, to not being sure whether we are interacting with a real person or with a machine. And I think we will be there in 10 years of, of being able to reproduce a sound and the person will not be able to say whether it's a real sound coming from the environment around them or is a sound that has been uh, created virtually and doesn't exist in the environment. And so that will open up a lot more things. It, it will very much depend on how much people are going to use this technology. In the past five years, there have been companies creating uh, sort of uh, hearing aids that are not for people with a hearing impairment. They are to enhance hearing, enhance audio. They haven't worked particularly well in the sense that they, haven't, they don't have a big uptake, also because it's very early technology. But I could very much see in 10 years people start using hearing aid not because they need... To, to, to recover from a particular loss, but because it's an enhanced way of interacting with the environment. Now, in terms of the content that will then be delivered with those, I, I actually don't, don't have much idea. I, uh, I, I hope that the internet will move towards a more a sound-oriented type of, of, of an environment, most of all because we will be able, we will want to interact with the web or with other things while we're doing something else. And sound is very good for multitasking, for example. So that's definitely a direction we could go. Um, but yes, I think for me, that the, the thing that I'm very much hoping for and looking forward and I think is very much achievable is to have a complete blend between virtual and um, real from an acoustic point of view. From a visual point of view, I don't think we'll be there in 30, 40 years from now. But from the sound point of view, in 10 years, it's perfectly doable. Lorenzo, Jennifer, Ben, thank you all very much. Thanks. Thanks to Jeremy Kingsley for his help in producing this episode. And thanks again to our sponsors, DXC, an independent IT services company that specialises in digital transformation, for supporting the series. And thanks to you for listening. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to subscribe to the EIU Digital Economy podcast on your platform of choice. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about the economics of product development for the Internet of Things.